Hey everyone! First off, we at the Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are producing this podcast, and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past, present and emerging. Let's go! Familiar Strange. I am Claire, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ashley Carruthers. Ashley is a lecturer of anthropology at the Australian National University School of Archaeology and Anthropology. His research interests include migration, mobilities, networks and infrastructures, farming, organic agriculture, bicycles, and he has conducted in-depth field work in Vietnam. Today we talked about an organic farming community called Tan Dong. It's located in the peri-urban region near Hoi An. We discussed what insights that we as urban dwellers and subjects of modernization, could glean from the farmers' organic agriculture project, which prevented them from being displaced. The project can be seen as a hybrid of multiple temporalities, where the traditional, the modern, and the postmodern are entangled in a non-linear manner. It is also an assemblage of network of various actors, including some non-human actors like the land or the chemical fertilizers. We talked a lot about Latour's actor network theory, his book Down to Earth and We Have Never Been Modern. But don't worry about it being too theory heavy, because Ashley has tons of fun stories along the way. We also talked about the emerging culture of cycling as a leisure activity in Vietnam, and how the elites may inadvertently bring about some public good while benefiting themselves. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chat group Join us on the Familiar Strange chat on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's interview. So here it is, my interview with Dr. Ashley Carruthers. So Ashley, thank you for joining us today. Just to kick off with, would you like to tell us about your research in general? Thanks, Claire. Thanks for having me. I was getting interested in, in working in Vietnam, so I did some sort of things, you know, with uh, rural urban migrants in Vietnam. So thinking about the lives of quite marginal rural people and how they managed to kind of create these survival circuits with the city. And more recently, I've been interested in kind of, I guess, micro-mobilities. So a recent paper I did was on bicycles in Vietnam and the kind of the, the culture of cycling which is becoming newly trendy in that country, um, as in other Asian countries. And then my most recent research is actually with some farmers on the edge of, of Hoi An, a tourist town in central Vietnam. And in a sense, these are people who've avoided becoming labor migrants by managing to, to stay on the, on the land. The, the idea of farming as a, a way of protecting the land that otherwise is, is going to get expropriated through, through remaining in agriculture and, and having things in the ground. 
with the help of, of an NGO and various other actors. Let's first focus on your research on this organic farming community near Huai'an. You've mentioned that the farmers work with a plethora of actors. Could you tell us more about the actors involved? Yeah, well, I I kind of was looking for some new inspiration, I guess, when I took this project on and had been meaning to get into the, I guess, the stuff around the ontological turn, the plant turn, theory of Bruno Latour, actor network theory and so on, because it seemed like some other people had written some inspiring stuff about agriculture, you, you know, uh, using those kinds of theories or, and methodologies. So I wanted to think about a collaboration between people and, and things and, you know, as, a, as an assemblage, a network of, of various kind of complex actors. Um, and the veggies here themselves are an important actor. Uh, the chemicals, you know, it was a, a project to get rid of chemicals and we can talk about the role that they play in the village later. But the chemicals become a really important actor, not only in terms of kind of their presence as a, as a perceived threat to people's health in the now, but also as a kind of historical actor, evoking memories of the war and what farming was like during that period and so on. When we, The land is also a really important actor because the story of this farm in Tandong Hamlet that I'm trying to tell, it's about preventing land from being gentrified in a sense by putting it into farming practice. So part of the triumph of the success of this farm is that people have actually managed for that land not to be redistributed back to the people's committee who might then have sold it to a resort developer or to to gentrifiers. If land is an actor, what is its meaning for those farmers then? Land reform for me is the greatest gain of the Vietnamese revolution. Um, you know, which we can think about as a land which was redistributed to cooperatives and communes and then to, to families. That process of land reform is something that's actually set it up for this trajectory of development and, you know, genuine improvement in the living quality of, of everyday people. So, yeah, for most Vietnamese people, the, the tangible thing, the positive thing that came out of that was land. To the extent that we see political protest and and civil society type activity in Vietnam, it's usually around land disputes where some actor might be the state, it might be the army, it might be a corporation or a a resort kind of body that's been sold the land by the state comes in and kind of basically forcibly displaces people. So I was kind of thinking, okay, you know, here are these heroic farmers. They're in a commune called Kham Tan which is about three kilometres from the centre of Hoi An. People who don't know it, Hoi An's a very famous tourist town in Vietnam. It gets millions, well, pre-COVID, <laughs> it had millions of foreign visitors a year. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's this kind of incredible pressure on the land. So there's, there's a kind of pressure from tourism for development of kind of micro-resort, but also expatriate gentrifiers who are attracted to this hamlet because of its reputation in a sense as a green environmentally kind of good space Mm. Um, and you know they're kind of happily buying up blocks of land and and building nice houses on it but this of course is you know potentially displaces farmers so in a sense it's it's a positive story in that the farmers have stayed there they haven't been completely displaced which would be kind of all-out gentrification. The desire to stay on the land is, you know, as I've found in my research, is still very strongly there uh, for many people. In line with the attraction of the land, you mentioned in your paper that, curiously, young people who have left Tandong Hamlet for city-waged labor, they were actually returning to these farm lands 
to help out their parents or grandparents with organic farming. And you also talked about how Latour inspired you with the idea of returning to land. What kind of connection do you think you can draw here? Yeah, no, for, for the farmers themselves, that, that return of, of their children and grandchildren has just been the most satisfying thing, yeah. right? So, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that the mainstream way of looking at things from a rural perspective in, v- in Vietnam today is that people think about farming as the past uh, and urban professional lifestyles are, are the future, okay? Yeah. So people who've studied places like, you know, industrialized villages in, in the Red River Delta, um, yeah. like Chung Dang and Sango Mahanti, say people in a, in a fabric dyeing village knew very well that they were poisoning their environment. Uh, and they knew very well that it was a kind of short-term moment in which they had the chance to to profit from this, but that there would be long-term damage, right? Yeah. Um, but they said to Trung and Sango that, well, basically we're, we're stuck in the situation of having to destroy our environment uh, because we want to pay for the education of our kids. We want to support them getting a foothold in the city because yeah. that's where we see their future, which you know, is not exactly a sustainable <laughs> way of looking at things. Part of what I'm talking about in the paper is the kind of the reversal or at least the pluralization of the temporal narrative mm-hmm. um, of, of the idea that, you know, village is past, city is future. So I'm kind of inspired by Latour and others who talk about temporality as, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a, a linear thing. We can have multiple temporalities operating in, in the same network in a sense. So in Tandong, at least, there's a counter narrative in a sense that's come into being whereby farming can be the future can be means of environmental rehabilitation and rejuvenation instead of destruction, can be a place for social integrity and you know, um, consolidation rather than the hollowing out of the social, which is what we see in your, in your typical migrant-sending rural village in Vietnam yeah. now. This was also inspired by reading Bruno Latour, especially his book Down to Earth. Yeah. Okay, so... It seemed to me that the farmers are doing something along the lines of what Latour is suggesting. So for him, kind of finding a place to land, accepting that we live in a common world, that there's no planet B, that we can't get outside, it means a kind of acceptance that, yeah, we need to prepare our ground for, for landing. So he wants to think about coming back to Earth as something that upsets the temporal narrative of modernization or, or globalization, okay, which is kind of... If we can imagine that as a kind of linear path that disappears off into a, a kind of future where there's modernization and development for all. Yeah. But of course, we've realized now that we have no planet compatible with the goal of modernization for all. And we need to prepare the ground for some kind of bumping landing <laughs> where we've abandoned that, that fantasy. So this creates all kind of really interesting warpings, I guess, of political and temporal and social and all sorts of trajectories. So he wants to talk about that kind of a modernization front that advances forward and leaves some people behind in the parochial, in the local, in the traditional, and puts some people in in the future. He wants to think about that modernization front turning. So Mm -hmm. it's not heading towards modernity anymore. It's heading back towards uh, what he calls the the terrestrial. So he wants to talk about, uh, this is a real case study, you know, a trendy young Hanoi person with a degree in architecture who could be making lots of money building townhouses, opting out of the rat race, volunteering for the NGO Action for the City that helped has, has helped these farmers, and then ending up becoming basically a, a farm worker. Okay, so the idea that oh, the future is not in that kind of materialistic modern dream of white-collar urban life, but it's rather this kind of uh, return, to, return to the earth. 
Land as an actor obviously is very important. You also mentioned at the beginning that another important actor is chemical fertilizers. So, what is the historical and social context of Tandong Hamlet's transition from using chemicals to, you know, recourse to organic agriculture? And we know that you know there is a tradition of holistic farming in Vietnam that involves all of this kind of integrated systems and intercropping and kind of the the layering of plants and so on. You know, taking the husks from the rice, grinding it into a powder, feeding it to the fish in the pond, and you know all of this kind of beautifully integrated stuff that's been broken yeah. <laughs> now. But the farmers that I'm working with have no living experience of this kind of you know so-called traditional farming. So when we talked about their their earlier memories of farming, for these folks it was it was chemical farming that came as early as the 50s and 60s.、Mm. So for me, you know, working in Vietnam, working in an area, Quang Nam Province, that was heavily bombed. There was some terrible pitched battles, some massacres in that province and the surrounding ones. A place that's been so fought over. To think about it as still being part of this war economy through fertilizer is is quite astounding and striking. So you know the 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 green revolution and the popularization of synthetic nitrogen was a direct result of World War Two, right? So.、Yeah. Part of the, the kind of incredible、uh, success of the U.S. in the war was that they just managed to produce munitions on an industrial scale. They needed something to do with those factories that could produce synthetic nitrogen after the war, and they were turned to fertilizer. Yeah, and you know th- those kind of bags of fertilizer coming from the U.S. were present in the local market in、yeah. Kamtan Commune, you know, as early as that. So for the folks that I was talking to, yeah, they're like,、oh, we. Didn't know anything about polyculture. We we used fertilizer. It just became such an ingrained mainstream way of farming. But there's you know a dawning realization now that this stuff has to be reined in to some extent. So for these folk, their encounter with the NGO and some foreign experts, international students, and so on, this was kind of a, a moment of learning about you know holistic farming、mm-hmm. techniques. It's very amusing to me that they're presented to tourists as traditional farmers, because that return to tradition, as as such, has come via the detour from、yeah. really real tradition through various iterations of modernity back into reconstituted tradition that's then packaged and sold to tourists as simple tradition. It's, it's quite beautiful, actually.、Uh, so I'm not a critic of this. I'm, I'm I think it's good for the tourists and and good for the farmers. Could you please elaborate on how the chemicals' role as an actor plays out? So, so the question of chemicals as as an agent or actor, yeah, I mean, you know, this would be a kind of Latourian perspective on、uh, a non-human as as an actor or agent.、Um, yeah, the farmers were definitely not happy with the status quo of heavy reliance on chemicals at、yeah. that time. One of my interviewees talks about. How in, in the afternoon when people would start spraying, she'd send her children to play by the river because literally the air in the the hamlet、oh, was so thick、wow. with pesticides, for example, that she was actually worried about their health. Okay, so in you see here, the chemicals are an actor that actually breaks up community. So the、yeah. children literally, the grandkids can't stay in the house; they have to leave the village, or leave the hamlet, and and go down by the river.、Mm. So there's a desire, in a sense, to get rid of chemicals. Kind of shows that the chemical is a kind of intrusive actor,、yeah. breaking up the sociability of the village, kind of、uh, making the environment uninhabitable, and so on. So it, it literally, in a sense, it pushes the children. Okay, it exerts a force. Think, to use some more Latourian language,、yeah. 
and pushes them out of that kind of zone of sociability, you know, into, into some kind of putatively, you know, mm-hmm. uncontaminated space. And then, that, you know, the history of the chemicals going back to World War II and, and, you know, the US war effort and so on, that, you know, that is, in a sense, to consider them as a historical actor that has its own kind of important sort of narrative and trajectory. The role that chemicals play in the discourse of agri- uh, organic farming is pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, while initially presenting themselves as people who didn't see how farming could be done without chemicals, many of the farmers have become kind of anti-chemical zealots now. <laughs> and um, look, I, I love the idea of organic farming. I try to eat organic veg whenever I can find it and afford it. But I do, you know, I, I wonder if we're going overboard uh, with this insistence on you know non-chemical farming Mm. so at at its worst i guess the chemicals become a kind of uh it's almost like a kind of magic right that you know we we get kind of very um well i don't know involved in magical thinking around chemicals you know they caused all of the harm and getting rid of them you know brings all of the goodness back uh, and actually, this this you know think about as well. Discourse is also an actor as well. If we if we really want to take a literary perspective, right? Yeah. Uh, so this is an important discourse as well, right? That you know chemicals were here, they were bad, they ruined our environment, they ruined our community. We've gotten rid of them. We've now got a kind of intact environment and an intact community. We've stayed on the farm instead of having to become labourers in the tourist economy, cleaning hotel rooms or being security guards. Uh, and, you know, this is a kind of posted history of the farm that's presented to an outsider like me when I arrive and in, indeed presented to tourists when they turn up as well. So the chemicals, I, we, they're an important player in this whole kind of drama of the, the farm from potential destruction to, to rehabilitation and success and so on. I, I think one of the kind of most jarring moments in the research for me was when I talked to the current head of the Farmers Association, and I asked him about the role of chemicals in the past and you know just how important it was to kind of banish them from the village. And uh, quite by contrast with the other farmers, he replied that, you know, when the organic project started, we'd actually already become much more educated about the harms of chemicals. We'd started to reduce our reliance on them. Mm-hmm. For me at that time, they weren't a problem. But this completely knocked my perspective sideways. And then I was like, oh, okay, wow. So this guy is, you know, a, a committed worker to the orga- in the organic farming network. It's really important to him. It's his livelihood, but he doesn't have a problem with chemicals. Uh, and then it turns out that, you know, it's actually very hard to farm rice in this area without using chemicals as well, oh, yeah. just because the rice fields will be exposed to other farmers. You know, there will be chemicals in the water, in the air, and so on. Mm. So actually on off-organic farm farming, on, on their own rice plots, they would still use chemical inputs, but just in a uh, kind of minimal way. Uh, so you have this kind of, you know, very ambiguous um, situation regarding the presence of chemicals. So, you know, ultimately we can't actually exclude the chemical from the equation, right? Okay, so far chemicals seem to act as a negative or at least ambivalent agent. Would you know if there are any unexpected positive effects it may have? So there's a great deal of anxiety around the safety of food in Vietnam, you know, as in China. Okay, so there's actually a show on Vietnamese TV um, called Food Safety, and apparently sometimes it airs twice a day 
in Vietnam. So this is almost kind of obsessive concern with safety of food. And the, the solutions that are usually presented have to do with things like, uh, you know, uh, codes on the uh, QR codes on the veg that you can kind of scan and then you have this blockchain kind of technology that allows you to kind of see that you know this mango was grown in in you know such and such a farm in the Mekong Delta and you know you're meant to be able to check up on it and so on yeah so this is kind of one model of producing a kind of a reversible network or a a transparent reversible path back to the origin of Mm -hmm. the veg Um, but of course you know this relies on distant technological actors and institutions that are meant to be surveilling the supply chain and, yeah. and we know that we can't really trust those <laughs> trust those as well. So actually the solution is probably this very non-modern and, and old-fashioned kind of personal relationship with the farmer and, yeah. and a kind of a, a functional, you know, a, a supply chain that's sufficiently simple yeah. that it is properly reversible and you can trace a problem back. So Thinking as well about chemicals as actor, one of the most interesting stories that came up in this research was about a batch of greens that a consumer complained about. So there was a batch of greens, I think they were mustard greens. They got to the consumer and the consumer got in touch with the Hoi An, the Phong Kinh Thế. So I guess the, the, the tr- uh, so there's a participatory guarantee scheme that this farm participates in, and that's one of their partners that's actually tasked with investigating any sort of issues. Yeah. The consumer felt that the greens were too green, which suggested that too much too much nitrogen, right? Too much yeah. fertilizer had been used. Got in touch with the Phong Kinh Thế, and then they investigated. They went back. They found the farmer who's from whose plot those greens had come. She explained that for that batch of greens, she'd used the husks from peanuts that, uh, you know, she'd had this waste from peanuts that mm. she'd used to make peanut oil. There's actually very high levels of uh, phosphates and nitrogens naturally in those. That batch of compost went into that bit of soil that grew those greens that made them too green that went to that consumer. And the whole thing was actually perfectly traceable back. So the PGS worked exactly as it was meant to. The consumer was told that, you know, this is not a problem. You know, this was because of this peanut husk waste and it's all good. So for me, this is a kind of ideal situation. And also, again, you know, the chemical as absent actor in that case does create this bond of sociability as well, right? So it prompts the consumer, you know, it prompts her to get in touch and actually investigate the the history of this specific patch of greens. Uh, And indeed, you know, that history can be provided. As I kind of observe in the paper, I think that there are some people in the, in the organic farming assemblage that are doing what the tool would call the work of purification. So this would be, you know, this would be the work in a sense of one of the most amazing things to, to watch at this farm is, is the washing and separating and sorting and packaging of the veg, right? Yeah. So it would be this moment where in a sense the, the soil is, is washed off those very specific histories of, you know, revolution, peasant soldier identities, land reform, you know, gentrifiers, land grabbers, party officials, these stories kind of get washed off the veg and they're presented to the consumer in Da Nang, which is an important market for for this farm, you know, as, as a pure product of nature, in a sense, unmediated by technology and even unmediated by human interference. So the people presenting the organic veg in the shop, okay, they'll tell you that this is from Tandong Farm, and as I've said, the network is reversible and and traceable and so on. But also in that moment of consumption, you are, as a consumer, having your fantasy that 
I'm eating the pure vegetable, right? Not contaminated by chemicals. It's so good for me. It's the nature. <laughs> the outside nature will be kind of become part of the nature that is my body. Things are as they should be and so on. For me, you know, this, okay, this is a necessary moment in, in the, the alienation and commodification of, of the veg. That some of it, some of it, you know, has that fate. But yeah, it's a kind of regrettable moment because it detaches one from that, you know, complex entanglement. But then I think, you know, the moment that you inquire about yeah. your two green greens... <laughs> then you're up to your neck again in those entanglements and you have to participate in the nature culture, yeah. right? Which is, you know, for me, again, it's a great argument in favour of farmers' markets, in favour of short supply chains, in favour of having personalised networks. And I think, you know, in, in Vietnam, I'm sure we have this in China too, it's that there's a kind of nostalgia for those kind of relations with food producers. So this becomes another kind of interesting Luturian thing to think of, right? Uh, I mean, many people who partly read We've Never Been Modern thinks that he's just against modernity and he wants to return to what we what he calls the old anthropological matrix where, you know, there's no separation between, you know, words in the world and, and people and animals and, and nature and culture and so on. But he says, no, you know, I, I think what we need to do is kind of not think about those kinds of networks as being in a different world from the networks of, of modernity and globalization. Mm. I want to look at them as the same kind of network. They're not radically different. But these things inhabit the same world. It's just that the modern ones have more extensible networks. It's mm. just the length of the networks and the length of the chains. And for him, this is not inherently a bad thing. It's a productive thing. It does enable us to come to the point where we think we can see pure nature, pure society, pure culture, and we can operate on them in, in enabling ways in some sense, or transformative ways. And for me, you know, the, the, the story of the Greens is so great because it is a, a practical example of a Luturian material semiotic, right? It's yeah. the signification of the thing that's actually physical. Uh, that's, you know, we're not in a separate, radically disconnected world of the sign and meaning and, and then a, a separate world of things and objects. You know, the greenness of the veg themselves is a sign, but it's a material sign that is there precisely because of the chemicals that were in that soil, which are there precisely because of the batch of compost that the farmer put into the soil. I really love Tendon's story of organic farming. It seems just so heartwarming. Um, I guess it's a story of community building, social solidarity, and even rejuvenating connections with different actors. It also seems as a counterexample of Latour's lament that people no longer share a common world. Um, so what meaning do you expect your study to have for the wider society? Here we have this incredible story of, you know, land being won back from the threat of, of being turned into a micro-resort and, you know, farmers re-inhabiting their revolutionary identities and um, complex negotiations between NGOs and local government and so on, you know, it's right. So there are already a few independent projects inspired by this that are popping up, some of which have involved the participation of the farmers themselves. Yeah. No, I think there's, there's an opportunity there because there's so much interest and kind of positive feeling around organics. I think, you know, hopefully there's a readership out there for a non-Western story about the success of on an organic farm. I think it's, you know, for me, Vietnam is in a better place than somewhere like where we are here in Canberra mm. uh, in, in terms of the capacity and the desire of people to shorten those supply chains.
Okay, so here we have Hoi An, a, you know, a huge tourist town. There's a lot of wealth in that town, and yet we have you know, farming villages, uh, like producing, you know, serious amounts of, of produce, you know, two or three kilometers away from the center of the city where all of the tourist restaurants are and so on. We have, you know, scare quotes, authentic farmers still living on those farms. We have those communities that have these kind of remembered revolutionary histories still intact. So, you know, the, that farm was struck quite hard by COVID because the, the tourism stream of their revenue dried up. But you know, they were able just to retreat into self-sufficient subsistence agriculture and focusing on supplying their, their neighbours with food. So for me, you know, that, that kind of story of the capacity of Vietnam to return mm. to a, a very grounded, very terrestrial existence is, is kind of inspiring. Again, you know, I'm not anti-modernity. I don't think we... I'm not a neo-traditionalist. I don't think we can return to the local in this parochial kind of way. You know, I, in the paper, I use a little bit of revolutionary language to say that if, if we're, you know, the, the arrow of time has now turned towards the terrestrial, then farmers in places like Tandong are actually the vanguard now. And those of us left behind in the cities on the wrong side of the modernization or on the wrong side of the advance of time towards the terrestrial. <laughs> about your study of the cycling culture in Vietnam. So in China, cycling has a dual role as either a means of transportation or a healthy leisure activity. And what is the story in Vietnam like? It is a transformation of the modern status of the bicycle that's gone on in Vietnam over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and you know, similar things occurred in, in neighboring countries as well. It's very interesting. I mean, I think you know, the bicycle is still used in Vietnam as a tool of work, as a tool of transport, especially you know, for the urban poor. I mean, it's, it's such an important means of, of livelihood for many people. You know, often when you read news stories about urban poverty in Vietnam, the image that they'll choose to go with the story is is mostly of a woman, probably a migrant from the Red River Delta, who's collecting glass, plastic, cardboard from the side of the road and has it piled up above her head on a bicycle. Oh. You know, this image is still synonymous with, with urban poverty. So I think it's, it's definitely a strong stigma around having to use a bicycle as your main means of transport or having to use it for work. So these are kind of instrumental, functional uses of the bicycle that, you know, still signify poverty and, and lack of privilege. By contrast, the choice of the bicycle as a means of leisure and conspicuous consumption is, is a whole different ballgame, right? So this has kind of become the game of elites. When road cycling started in Vietnam, you know, I'm talking about people dressed in lycra with kind of beautiful carbon bikes that can cost up to 10,000 US dollars in Vietnam much more than a motorbike that, that your average person would be riding. You know, this kind of thing started as a kind of craze that was inspired by the global kind of cycling culture of the Tour de France and so on. So anyway, this, this kind of whole scene of road cycling sort of popped up as a means of, okay, it's a means of leisure, it's a means of sociability, but I think, you know, we also should see it as a kind of conspicuous consumption that allows the emerging urban middle classes to kind of show off their wealth. So, you know, prior to this, we had the craze for tennis and, and golf and so on. I think cycling 
is great for conspicuous consumers because when you're playing golf, you know, only the people in the golf course can see you. But when you're riding around Da Nang on your $10,000 French-made bicycle, <laughs> everyone can see you. <laughs> so in an early interview I did with a, one such cyclist in Da Nang who had Vietnamese American friends who'd got him all his gear and his bicycle and stuff, he was often subject to what I would call status confusion. So people could look at him and they'd be like, well, this guy's obviously a rich guy. He's wearing all this fancy gear. That's not like any bicycle I've ever seen. But because he was on a bicycle, they didn't know how to treat him. <laughs> uh, and I also had this kind of observation from a, a lecturer in, in Saigon as well who refused to ride a motorbike and would turn up to malls and to the university on a bicycle as well. And people just didn't, absolutely did not know how to read her. And she was actually refused admittance to shopping malls <laughs> because they thought she was some kind of do dodgy person because she turned up on a bicycle. So, you know, I think it, it's kind of interesting that perspective on things. Another in interlocutor who's an expat who's lived in Hanoi for a long time, when motorcycles, you know, the Honda Dream in particular, started becoming affordable and popular in the 90s, this chap stuck to his bicycle. And he was actually a, a pioneer of this kind of habit of riding around West Lake, which has now become a mass movement. And in those days, people would actually ride up next to him on their motorbikes and yell like, why don't you get a motorbike? <laughs> and this is not out of any kind of anti-cyclist sentiment. Um, it's just that they felt horrified that he did not understand the incredible kind of clash of, of status that was going on here. So here he was, uh, you know, a white American, uh, you know, um, an elite social subject riding, you know, the kind of the transport of, of the poor, okay? And this was just unbearably wrong to people to the extent that they felt that they had to tell him. It's like telling someone, hey, dude, your fly's undone, you know, it's, it's embarrassing you. Um, hey, you're on a bicycle, come on, that's, that's not right. So some of the early adopters of the road cycling scene then kind of became the first trendy uh, bicycle commuters in, in Hanoi in this case. So there's, there's a legendary chap who's very high up in, in um, some branch of government, uh, not short of money. He has, you know, cars and, and motorbikes and so on, but he chooses to ride to his office on his bicycle and he has a special commuter bicycle just for this task. And this guy, yeah, was like one of the kind of pioneers of middle-class cycling in Hanoi as a kind of green activity or as a health-focused activity. And then, interestingly enough, some of his colleagues started to copy him because it became a thing that, oh, wow, the boss cycles to work, okay. Well, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to see how elites have had positive influences on other people. And what do you see as the wider impacts of elites choosing to cycle? Yeah, so we have this kind of interesting scene of elites who have taken up road cycling in particular and now mountain biking as a kind of sport. And for me, yes, it's, it's an elite sport, it's conspicuous consumption, it highlights the, the precarity of the existence of those who must use the bicycle to work and so on. But the positive of it is that it engages with the, uh, these elites with the city as cyclists. Mm. So they love to cycle most of the folks I worked with were in Hanoi. They live in a city that's increasingly congested, increasingly becoming car-centric. It's not that pleasant or safe to ride around in a Hanoi anymore, sadly. I don't feel that, uh, when I do it, I don't feel that at risk from the traffic itself, but just the fumes cannot be good for you. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, in a sense, these folks kind of in a, in a soft way become activists for a cyclable city, which from my perspective is a livable city. So one of the things I write about in that, that paper, which is in, in transfers, is a kind of incident where a new bridge, the Nyetan Bridge in Hanoi, is part of a link on this highway that takes you from West Lake, which is a, you know, the, the most privileged district in Hanoi. It takes you directly from there to the airport in about 15, 20 minutes. It's oh, just wow. a dream. Yeah. So this was built. The first thing that these folks thought was, I want to cycle this highway and this bridge. It's incredible. And on the very first morning, they were met by police in uh, trucks enforcing a ban on cycling on the bridge. And it was never properly explained why bicycles weren't allowed on the bridge, but it was the, the suggestion that I got was that it was probably the Japanese engineers thought it would be unsafe to have bicycles on the bridge because there'd be high-speed traffic and so on, and they, they wouldn't mix. But, you know, this is not actually the case. I've ridden across that bridge many, many times, and it's the volume of traffic is not that significant. Um, there's always space to kind of exist on the side on a bicycle, People tend to be more forgiving towards you as a cyclist in Vietnam than, than in a, a truly car-centric culture like we have here in Australia. So I can only conclude that it's kind of out of a – you know, they wanted to ban bicycles out of a feeling that they just wouldn't look modern. They wouldn't look in place, this, you know, absolute kind of apotheosis of modernity in the form of infrastructure that was there in, in, in Hanoi. So these elites didn't like this experience. Some – Favors were called in, some phone calls were made, is what I hear, and the very next day, the ban on cycling on the bridge was overturned. Wow. So, yes, uh, it's not kind of bicycle advocacy and activism as usual, but, you know, this is a kind of version of elite informality, yeah. uh, right, whereby in Hanoi, for example, we've seen elites who like to use the parks in their neighbourhoods in Hanoi protect those parks from being turned into hotels. So it's a selfish interest in that space, and yet there's a public good that comes out of that interest, right? Yeah. And so they secure their own right of bicycle access to the bridge and the highway, but also the access of, uh, you know, say, lumpen proletariat, people who use it on bicycles as well, for example, to transport flowers for sale back and forth from the flower villages around Hanoi to the Old Quarter. I think this kind of compounds what we know about how elite politics works in the city as well but you know i think in the end there is a kind of a public good that comes out of this encounter ashley thank you so much for appearing on our show today thanks claire thanks for having me Was it me and Dr. Ashley Carruthers? Today's episode was produced by me, Claire, with help from all the other familiar strangers. Our executive producers are Diana Cato and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes or dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes 
including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world, at thefamiliarstrange.com. And while you are there, also check out our latest blog post by Carolyn West, who reflected on her experience of navigating the intense COVID-19 lockdown in Melbourne. And how the vipassana meditation helped her survive. If you want to contribute to the blog, or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time. Keep talking strange.